first off, right off the bat, before we get into, well, episode 557 of Monster Kid Radio, just a quick apology. We had some technical issues, and I'll save you all the gory details, but the bottom line is that in an attempt to do some upgrades to my computer recently, Magic Man Tom and I pulled all the cables out, the USB cords in particular, to gain access to the box and, you know, rip it apart and get the guts and that sort of thing. And in that process, somehow or other, we completely, or I completely, disabled the microphone and the sound card and everything else sound-related to my machine, which, as you can imagine, is kind of an issue when it comes to creating audio content. I could hear the audio. I could edit what was already there, but I couldn't create new audio like I'm doing right now. I couldn't create new audio like this apology for letting you know that I am sorry that the episode of Monster Kid Radio is a little bit late. But the episode is still here. Better late than never. Welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. And for the record, I'm not blaming Magic Man Tom on this, my computer guy. Tom is amazing and has done so much for Monster Kid Radio over the years. I think it's even fair to say if not for Tom, there would not be a Monster Kid Radio. So big thanks to Tom. Five Fingers with Parasol, that's the name of the band that you're hearing right now. The song is called Astronave 63 and it's from the album Cio Tviero Una Longboard. It translates to If I Had a Longboard, it's in Spanish. I don't read or speak Spanish. I did the best that I could. But that's the name of the song, and you're going to be able to find it over at their Bandcamp page, which is at the number 5fingers.bandcamp.com. So 5fingers.bandcamp.com. Check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. They've given us permission to play their music here on the show in the past, and it's been a while since I've played any of their stuff, so thought I'd dip into their catalog and this is what you're getting this week. You're going to hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode. And oh, this episode. I'm really excited about this episode. We've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. It's a good one. We've got the Beta Capsule review. It continues. Yes, we wrapped up Ultraman last week, but now it is time to get into Ultra 7, 7, 7, Seven, I can't wait. And I'm doing something a little bit different this time around with the Beta Capsule review. You see, I had seen all of Ultra Q, I had seen all of Ultraman, and I'd seen most of Ultra 7 and a handful of the other Ultraman series over the years. Big fan of Ultraman 80 in particular. But with Ultra 7, I hadn't seen the entire run. I sat down this past week with Wednesday and watched the first three episodes of Ultra 7 because I intend to keep up, to keep abreast with what Mark Matsky's talking about in the Beta Capsule review. And I'm really glad I did. I took the shrink wrap off my Mill Creek Entertainment Ultra 7 box that I've had sitting on my shelf for a long time and dove right in. And oh man, so good. So good. You know what else is so good though? The conversation this week with returning guest Stephen Turek. We're going to be talking about the movie The Alien Factor, which is a little outside of the wheelhouse, but I'll tell you why we're covering it when we get to the conversation in which we're covering it later on in this episode. Of course, that's after the look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. We're going to get to all of that right after this.
That is an incredible motion picture. An entire town goes berserk when a giant underwater creature attacks all human life. That is a frightening experience. Don't miss that. Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Shattering than your strangest nightmare. <laughs> Please, we're doing all we can for you. We're trying to bring you back down to normal size. You do think I'm a freak, don't you? But you know, to me, you're the freak, the one who's different. I'm not growing, you're shrinking. <laughs> he started as a normal human being, but now each day he doubles in size. Where will it stop? The amazing, colossal man. Colonel, he's been reported in Las Vegas. Impossible. How can he walk 120 miles in only an hour? Impossible. Not when you're 60 feet tall. The amazing, colossal man. Live from the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty ultra heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. An all-new credit sequence and theme song introduces Ultra 7, Episode 1, The Invisible Challenger. We are immediately informed that an invasion of Earth is underway. As people from all walks of life spontaneously vanish, the viewer is taken to a secret base for the Terrestrial Defense Force, packed with the best scientific equipment and cutting-edge weaponry. Among the TDF members, are the Ultra Guard, comprised of Captain Kiriyama, Soga, an expert marksman, Furuhashi, an experienced athlete, Amagi, a skilled tactician, and Anne, a nurse. While investigating the disappearance of two TDF members, Furuhashi and Soga encounter a mysterious wanderer who goes by the name Dan Moroboshi, who saves them from an attacking UFO and drives them back to headquarters. The invisible craft then bombs an industrial area, and Alien Cool claims responsibility, threatening to strike Tokyo next. The TDF acts on Dan's suggestion to make the enemy saucer visible, and when he accompanies the Ultra Guard on their counter mission, proves to be full of surprises. Episode 1, The Invisible Challenger, debuted October 1, 1967, and it signaled that Tsuburaya Productions was back in a major way. From the elaborate underground base, to the three-part Ultra Hawk aircraft, to the armored car nicknamed the Pointer, Dan Muraboshi's use of Capsule Monster Wyndham, and Ultra 7 unleashing the lethal eye slugger, essentially a bladed boomerang on Alien Cool, 
There are bold and downright iconic elements in almost every scene. Familiar faces abound. Both Akihiko Hirata and Kenji Sahara are part of the TDF Brain Trust, and Sandayu Dokumamashi, the Science Patrol's own Arashi, stars as Ultra Guard member Furuhashi. Of the new faces in Ultra 7, one stands out because he finally gets to show it. It's Satoshi Bin Furuya in the role of Ultra Guard member Amagi. He was in every episode of the original Ultraman series, but we never saw his face because it was concealed by the silver mask of our first hero from the Land of Light. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only, to acquire breeding stuff to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth Maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased, Princess. You are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. Terrifying invasion of the Beach Party. Sick Frankenstein meets the Space Monster in Futurama. The Incredible Shrinking Man. You are getting smaller. There's no medical precedent for what's happening to you. I, I simply know that you're getting smaller. I want you to stop thinking about us, our marriage. Some awful things might happen. As long as you've got this wedding ring on, you've got me. This is Orson Welles speaking. I have 45 seconds to tell you about something I think you'll remember the longest day you live. It's about a man named Scott Carey. A few months ago, he was six feet, two inches tall and weighed 190 pounds. Today, he's two inches tall and you can hold him in the palm of your hand. Now he lives in a world where he must fight for his life, a world where a friendly house cat is a predatory monster. Incredible, because it's almost beyond imagining. 
incredible because every hour he gets smaller and smaller. Incredible because every moment the terror mounts. Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com, and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, Derek and Steve will be talking about the low-budget Alien Factor. This film was not only featured in FM, one of its aliens graced the cover and this in the middle of the Star Wars Close Encounters craze. Let's look at Alien Factor's appearance in FM 143 from May of 1978. On the cover, we have the strange humanoid alien against a hot pink background. Inside, we have a four-page article with seven photos. Let's hear what it had to say. Night of the Living Dead. Schlock. Dark Star. Flesh. Gordon. Names indeed. To conjure with. Another independent feature-length film now stands in the wings, waiting to be judged. A science fiction film known as The Allen Factor. Note, that is an actual bold-lettered typo in FM, not me mispronouncing. Here's the story. The small town of Perry Hill in remote western Maryland is a quiet town, restful, peaceful, kind of place a person could retire to. Enjoying the view of a sunset from their car are Mary Jane and her boyfriend Rex Walker. Everything seems as normal as one might expect until they are attacked. Attacked by a thing so horrible that it borders on being alien. A large black shape covers the faces of the two lovers and pulls the screaming Rex completely out of the car. Mary Jane cowers as she stares at the Imphorbice. The Infrabice, a man-sized insect, savagely destroying the boy she was just sitting with. In a panic, Mary Jane flees the car and escapes as the Infrabice puts its vicious finishing touches to Rex. And this happens only three minutes into the film. The rest of the synopsis follows, and after that, 
these production notes. The film was made by Cinemagic Visual Effects Incorporated. The group is made up of dedicated fans who have been making fantasy-oriented amateur movies for years. Some studied filmmaking in college. In the summer of 76, they decided they would take the big step. Spearheaded by Don Doler, editor of a fanzine devoted to special effects, the group began to hold regular meetings in the home of George Stover, known to FM readers as the publisher of Black Oracle fanzine. George, who has been an actor in Baltimore film and stage productions, was given the role of Stephen, and the people who would eventually be involved with the film began to pop up. Finally, after much looking, Don Liefert was chosen to play the leading role, the monster killer adventurer. As the first day of shooting drew close, Don Doler put the finishing touches to his script. The equipment and film were obtained, and the alien factor was on its way. The most exciting thing about the alien factor is, of course, the aliens. The Infrabice was built and worn by Larry Schlechter, a local makeup artist. Larry followed the description in Doler's script and came up with a man-like version of a cockroach. He molded paper mache over portions of hinged cardboard and used this as the basis of the creation. Details like shiny black eyes and the way the thing was to walk all came later. In the end, the finished product you see on the screen was made up of seven main pieces. The Zagatile is another of the deadly aliens. Built and worn by John Consentino, the creature is a remarkable seven and a half feet tall. The story behind the construction of the Zagatile is just as amazing as the beast itself. Since Constantino is going to be the Zagatile, he began the process by somehow making a large plaster cast of his own body. With this, he began the sculpting process necessary to make this strange being as lifelike as possible. Using ski boots, John molded one and a half foot high claw-like feet for the creature. Yards of brownish fur, gallons of latex, and many hours later, John had himself an exceptionally realistic alien. Fans of Harryhausen and Danforth should like one of the other aliens, the Lemoid. The Lemoid is a three-dimensional stop-motion creation. It is a glowing energy being, invisible by day, hauntingly present by night. The music for the film is an original symphonic synthesizer score. Needless to say, the music definitely fits the overall mood of the picture. 22 dedicated actors, filmmakers, and artists donated their time and talent to create monsters and special effects, said to be worthy of any Hollywood standard. The opening credit scene is quoted as truly outstanding. Unproven talents have made it on the professional screen before. We have but to remember Equinox, Schlock, The Blob, Dark Star. The important factor is competence in order to compete in the theatrical market. George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Jim Danforth, John Landis, Rick Baker, Paul Clemens, Mark Hamill, and others have all come up through the ranks from FM-inspired fans. FM hopes, as an ongoing source of inspiration to the new generation, it has something more to be proud of in The Alien Factor. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Mankind has conquered the stars. 
he moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration call. A new breed of pioneer must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. Drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. of the 21st century planet smashers dark star 20 years in space 1 million light years from earth their job is to clear a path for the colonization of space back home back home in malibu i used to surf a lot talby i used to be a great surfer travel in an infinite universe with mind-melting excitement from beyond the stars. Dark star. They're not lost in space. They're loose. A world-famous scientist, greatest living master of the occult, has mysteriously vanished. In his place, a huge and fearsome prehistoric monster suddenly appears. What happened to Dr. Waterman? Only one man, last to see him alive, knows. And now he finds himself in deadly peril. The weird, the unbelievable, the supernatural come alive before your very eyes in Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil, between light and the forces of darkness. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? See four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their lives, their sanity, their eternal souls in Equinox. In supernatural color, Equinox. Daddy, what's a schlock? Well, son, a schlock is a beast from 20 million years ago who eats nothing but bananas, milk, chocolate cake, and ice cream. Is Schlock strong? Mm, the strength of a hundred full-grown gorillas. Pretty strong, eh? Yeah, but the heart of a puppy. Can we go to see the Schlock? Can we go to the zoo, huh? Schlock isn't at the zoo. Where is he? Only in the theater. It's a movie? Schlock, 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 Schlock. 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 Widescreen color rated PG. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I'm recording, and everything looks like it's going to capture just fine, I hope. Shall we do this? Shall we make what you refer to as magic? Alien magic, <laughs> baby. I'm going to hit the record button now. All right. <laughs> You good? I'm good. I was just waiting for you. It's your show. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. Well, I know. I'm waiting for you. Hi. <laughs>
Monster Kid Radio listeners, I know it's been a, such a long time since you've heard this man on Monster Kid Radio. It feels like it's been weeks since we've had Steve Turek back on the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I mean, this is my first time this year on your show, and I'm really happy. I like that. First time in 2022. There you go. That's right, man. I'm with the Hall of Famer, oh. Rondo Award winning, author, podcaster, all around heck of a nice guy i'm with Derek m cook what else could you want in life oh, wow <laughs> i mean I'll, I'll take it um but uh wow okay um i don't know you flustered you left me flustered man um that's okay what do you see the bill <laughs> oh man no in all seriousness this is going to be fun i'm looking forward to it the movie that we're talking about today is a movie that steve has brought up to me a few times over the years i've always kind of drug my heels a little bit on it you know i don't know it's 1978 and it's not really you know but also over the years i've softened a little bit and i've been less strict when it comes to what i consider the the wheelhouse the the years that we use as our guidelines for what movies can be talked about on monster kid radio and besides in the end it's my show i make the rules so i finally relented partly because steve sent me the movie as a christmas gift but i finally <laughs> relented <laughs> and we're gonna be talking about the alien factor which Oh, man, I had never seen before. My experience with Don Dohler is incredibly small. I don't own any of his films outside of the Alien Factor. I don't think I've seen any of his movies. The only thing that I've seen that's a Dohler related is the documentary that came out. Uh, must have been at least 10 years ago now. Blood, Boobs, and Beast. Is that what it's called? I believe so. The only thing I've ever seen of Don Dohler's is the Alien Factor, and I saw it in the late 70s, early 80s, and I saw it multiple times on TV. Well, okay. All right. So uh, you're not going to be able to tell me anything about Don Dollar then. Great. Well, no, no. That's, I can talk fantastic. to you about Don Dollar. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you, saw, you saw the thing. I do know Don Dollar, and this is why I think it fits with your show. He intended this as a homage to 1950s type science fiction monster movies. Small, oh, sure. town, totally sheriff, that. and that's what his thing was. So this fits in them. It's like the Christopher Mim movies are filmed in current times, but they're always put back in that um, 1950s era. And this is a, kind of the same thing, except it's still, it, it's in 1978, but it has the 1950s feel. Yeah, and, and it totally fits. And in the end, like I said, it's my show, I decide. So when you sent this to me in the mail, it's like, okay, I guess we finally have to talk about it. But I'm glad we did. We're going to talk about it here in a second, talk about a few other things. But first, I want to hear about what's going on over at Diecast Movie Podcast. We're doing our James Well retrospective and interviews and movies decided by the roll of a die. I, the episode that came out recent, most recently was two of them. One of them was the interview of Beverly Washburn, who you did an episode with about Spider Baby. And of course, we all know she was in that movie, besides a lot of other mm -hmm. things. So if people want to get an idea of some of her remembrances of Spider Baby, you can listen to that. And I just had an episode released with The Invisible Man with Joshua Kennedy, who's been on your show multiple times and on my show also. And we that's part of the James Well retrospective. And we do a nice deep dive into that movie and get um, Josh's impressions on James Whale's work on that masterpiece. Very cool. And where can people find the podcast? They can go to Facebook and do Diecast Movie Podcast, and we're li listed there. Or you can go to any of your podcast 
catchers and just put diecast movie podcast in and follow us that way we also have a twitter account and that kind of thing so there's multiple ways you could find us but pretty much once you find us just subscribe you'll get the episodes and i have two interviews i'm going to be doing on wednesday this week that are with people that starred in this particular movie so if if you're interested in learning more about the movie i'll be talking to two of the actors that were in it do you want to say who? Can you say who? Well, I can tell Would you, you who. Re- Richard Diesel, who plays okay. the mayor, and George Stover, who plays what my favorite character, because his name is Steven. That's all it takes. I, I, I'm easy that way. You know, favorite favorite players in sports, if their name starts with Steven, they usually rank higher with me. It's, it's, it's I don't know. Just like I'm sure Derek <laughs> Jeter from baseball is one of your favorite players because of Derek. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, what does he play again? Plays baseball. What well, I'm... Uh, what is that? Don't worry about it. It's 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 a game played with a ball that's called a baseball. <laughs> oh, sports ball, sports ball, sports ball. Got it. Okay. Oh, speaking of sports ball, I have to ask you a question. I'm sure listeners are wondering. Last last year we did not do it, but we did it the two years prior. Are we going to be doing the monster movie tournament this year? I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. Do you, do you want to do it? Well, I wouldn't have brought it up if I wasn't interested, but it's up to you. It's your show if you want me to do well, it. Well, that's a good point. Oh, no, Derek. I don't want to do it. That's why I brought it up. No, no, don't do it. No. If listeners are interested in us doing that, give feedback to Derek and we'll go for it and um, do another round. Sounds good to me. Right on. But I, I got to say, I just want to say, I really enjoyed your Spider Baby episode. I loved it. And um, I mean, you, you've been coming out of the year strong. I mean, you're you're like a lean, mean fighting machine. You're ready for 2022, and you ain't gonna take no gruff from it this time. You're going in fighting strong. Go for it, Derek. Keep, but pace yourself. Pace yourself. It's only January. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope the Spider Baby episode was worth the wait, since it took me so long to put out. Let's put it this way: it came out quicker than Morbius is. That movie that keeps getting delayed. Wow, see, I thought you were going to make a crack about the Conan episode, so. It's like a fine wine. Conan will not see the light of day until Derek says it's ready. Probably ought to get on that, huh? I'm patient. Hmm. Oh, speaking of Spider-Baby, I'm negotiating with Jack Hill to interview him, and we all know what he directed, Spider-Baby. Very cool. Oh, yeah. Very cool. That's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it, man. You came out swinging to begin with, but you've just been really knocking it out of the park dude so it's been fun to watch your development as a podcaster and the show kind of evolving and all these interviews have been fantastic so that's awesome i'm i'm proud of you buddy oh thank you thank you you're my inspiration you know it it really when i started listening to podcasts there was you're the second one i discovered and i said this many times to you before it was at a time in my life when things were the darkest and a monster kid radio was there as a beacon of light showing me hope, bringing me through the darkness with your upbeat positivity and and surf music going on all the time. And it got me through. I listened to, I think, like 300 episodes in a few months period, you know, and uh, it, w- it was like a, that beacon that got me through. So thank you. You always have my eternal gratitude for that. So does that mean I don't have to pay you for all the nice things you said earlier? No, you never had to pay me. That was a joke. <laughs> now happy to be here man and and, uh i've really enjoyed what you've done so listeners check it out i'll make sure there's links in the show notes but every time i ask steve where can people find it he never gives me a website he says it's all over 
So I'll try to find a few links for the website for the Diecast Movie Podcast and put that in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. I think probably because you stream or you host your website over at anchor.fm, that might be the most direct way to go outside of the Facebook or social media presence. Is that right? That's right. And I don't have an official web page. That's, that's why I can never give I you know, a web I'm page. Just, I'm just teasing now. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we can sit here and continue to tease each other, or we can get on with the rest of the show with a round of the game that if I don't play with Steve, I'm going to hear about it for months. It is the Classic Five. The Classic Five. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Pinch me. Pinch me. It's it's a dream. The Classic Five is a game that we play on every episode of Monster Kid Radio, for the most part, where I have a deck of cards. Each card has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question on them? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking, get to know each other a little bit better, that sort of thing. And in February, probably toward the end of the month, new deck. Party in the works. Stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we're going to go through some questions with Steve Turk. Steve, are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? Bring it on, Mr. Cook. Question number one. What is your favorite... Aliens Invade the Earth movie. Favorite Aliens Invade the Earth movie? And we're talking the classic movies from 1968 or prior? Pretty much. Body Snatchers. The Body Snatchers. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand... And the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! I mean, really, it's a classic with the social consciousness, the, in my opinion, the the, the ending where you just know it, humanity's not going to get through it. It's, it's, it's like a 70s downer ending before the 70s. <laughs> of course, redone in the 70s, which is also an excellent version of the film. So you have two excellent versions of the film right. out there. I mean, you just really, you can't go wrong with either one. I enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's a story, a tale as old as time. <laughs> Question number two. Favorite classic alien design? Favorite classic alien design. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. So I'm going to keep with aliens. I'm not going to count any of the androids or the robots. Does it have to be aliens that came to the planet no. Earth or could it be aliens? No. That, anyway. Oh, then the Id Monster. The Id Monster. Wow. Okay. Planet. Okay. Even though you only see it for a few seconds, when I saw that movie as a boy, that movie scared the living crap out of me. I mean, you know, because an invisible monster, it was going through everybody. It was unstoppable. And then when you finally saw the energy being type creature that it was, mm -hmm. it was terrifying. That's etched in my mind as, as a young lad seeing that movie. So for me, the id monster, yeah, it's, it scared the living id out of me. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? What, did, what's did your you, favorite? I, I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why that hit me. I think I broke Derek. Uh, uh, I broke Derek. I'm sorry. Listeners. Uh, my, my, what's your scariest? Oh, what's your scariest, air, scariest alien monster? I, uh, I really like. Okay, so I've got two. I like the War of the Worlds, Martians, and Meta Luna mutants are amazing. 
So I'd say one of those. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah, those are awesome. Also, there's there's a lot of runner-ups. I mean, yeah. but it's just if I had to go with the one that scared me the most, that's the one that scared me the most. Was that that was question two? That was question right. two. Well, let's get to question three then. Which movie do you prefer? It, the thing from outer space, or it, the thing from beyond space, or the terror from beyond space? I'm going to go with it, the terror from beyond space. How could that thing have gotten aboard? Why? Just to kill us? There's a usual reason an intelligent creature kills. It's hungry? What makes you so certain it's intelligent, Colonel? Not just an animal. It opened the door to see compartment. In the silent void of outer space, puny man matches his cunning against a monster from Mars running rampant, howling for all the flesh and blood on Earth. Wow. It, it, mm. Is there a particular reason why that one edges over the, uh, or, or overtakes it, the thing from another world? I like the design better. I like the design better. I think it's a, it's a better mm. design. Now, we're not talking about the movies. We're just talking about creature design. So it's, I like that creature design. Okay. It's, it's to me, it's, it's superior. The one from the thing for, if the, you know, the thing from another world, it, it, does, it doesn't do as much for me. Looks like a giant carrot. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, and I've heard that levied against that film quite a bit, actually, that it, it's, it's a good film until you get to the monster. Now I, I'm down with the monster, whatever. I don't have a problem with it, but I, I totally understand where people are coming from when they, when they say that. But I think you're right. The monster design from It, the terror from beyond space, is better. Even though the head, the mask, doesn't fit the actor, it still kind of works. You know, his chin Uh sticking out of the mouth really could just be like a tongue or an extra lip or whatever. It doesn't matter. It looks great. Yeah. You just kind of remember, if you're not watching the still shot of it, you just watch it in the flow of the movie, it works great. I think what a lot of people do, good or bad is with the ability to freeze frame things and expand it. And then you're able to look and especially when things are now in better quality pictures than they ever would, that you ever would have saw back in the film back in the day. And when it True. was released, you can see the, the lines and the zippers or whatever, but it was never meant to be the scene that way. So I, I always try to take these things into context of how they were meant to be. So avoiding the freeze framing and things like that, I like the design. It works with the movie. Okay, fair enough. Question number four. Aliens are attacking right now. Who do you want to have save us? John Agar or Richard Carlson? Ooh, John Agar or Richard Carlson. Aliens are attacking us. I want John Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Can you imagine John Wayne fighting aliens? Oh, man. You know, instead of Harrison Ford in Cowboys versus Aliens, it's the Duke, John Wayne. This, this, this you get out of here, you alien pilgrims. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's wow. just there's just there's just something about the Duke showing up and with Walter Brennan and the rest of them coming into you know, riding those horses. John Carradine, because he was in stagecoach with the Duke. I mean, you could you can get a a who's who of actors in the genre work going with him. I mean, Vincent Price was in a Western. So, I mean, you could really have a cowboy gang. This, if, this, I'm on to something. If here. that's what you're going to go with, <laughs> I'll give it to you because uh, some of John Agar's earliest films were with John Wayne. That's right. Um, that's why I want with it, Pilgrim. All right. All right. 
if I was to go with that, it would have to be John Agar because he'd be backed up with John Wayne, you know, and all the other, and all the rest. So John Agar, out of the two, I'd pick John Agar because I, I would see it as a Cowboys versus Aliens type thing and bring in John Agar with the Gatling gun, you know, just mowing them down. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Could you imagine? He's got like um piece of branch or not a strange, straw gritted in his teeth and he's just like taking out the alien scum in his mind you know oh, that would be great and finally favorite alien spaceship design from a classic monster movie Ooh. and that now we're talking classic it has to be a movie you said okay well i was going that. for movie yeah yep yeah. uh let's see Hmm. That, that is a good one. That, oh, yeah, this is a tough one because there's there are several of them that are popping into my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think now. There's there's the alien design. I like the alien spaceship design in Forbidden Planet. I like the alien design in War of the Worlds. Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I'm gonna go with War of the Worlds. Okay. I'm considering the spaceship because to be the craft that the aliens are in the the. the the pods attacking the planet okay. and i'm not sure if they're actually spaceships or not i'm going to count it as that if you if that's okay with you yeah of course the image of them coming george powell did such a great job with that movie and i just seeing them move along the earth i mean oh come on i mean you, you can't get much better than that it's like it's an iconic image um yeah just those those Oh, whoa, it's good stuff. If you would not, if you would have said any type of alien design in the classic era, I would want the Starship Enterprise. Oh, see, now you know you're playing, now you're playing to your audience. Because you, because you know, I'm playing to myself. You know, you, I'm, um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been, ha- I've had a mad on for Star Trek for, for a while lately. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, that is the classic five. Some good answers, uh, some great answers. Uh, I hope you had a great time, Steve. I did. I did. It was very alien centric. I did that on purpose, sir, because we're talking about a movie that has alien in the title. We're talking about the movie, The Alien Factor from 1978. And I did not find a decent trailer, so I'm not going to put it in here. Let's just keep talking. This was a first time watch for me, like I said, at the very top of all of this. But I know this is something that you have had very fond thoughts and memories about for a long time. How did you first see this movie? I'm not sure when it got to TV. Okay. Because it came out in 78. So it might have been, it could have been 79. It could have been 80. The early 80s, this movie was constantly being run on different TV networks in the packages. And I just remember watching it several times growing up in the early eighties and it was a good movie. You got to also remember, I think I might've actually seen it in the movie theater when I was younger with my brother, because it was filmed in Maryland and it had, so it was in a lot of different movie theaters in Maryland at the time. So I might've saw it when I was nine years old with my eldest brother, Rick. So I think I did see it in the movie theater. I know I saw it later in life. I saw it several years ago. They had this, um, they had the science fiction club locally and they had a, um, theater showing of the alien factor the rest the restored edition of it so i got to see that one um but i've been so i've seen it probably eh, 10 12 times most of them when i was younger but a few times since i've been older 
and I enjoy it. It's 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 like I said, reminiscent of the science fiction movies of the fifties, and it had a good feel. I enjoyed it because it has multiple aliens or monsters or creatures. I think it has an interesting plot, and I, I just it was it was nice to go into when when I'm watching on TV, if. You know, you're flicking the channels and you already missed the beginning of it because you saw it already. You know, you can hop right in and enjoy the parts because you know it's coming up. As I said earlier, I had no experience with this film at all going into it. I knew of the title. I knew the title before Steve started mentioning it to me, you know, in various conversations over the years. And I don't know if it's because I had seen that documentary that I mentioned a little while ago or if I actually saw like the VHS cover of it at the video store because as a film geek growing up, you know, in, in small town, Cheyenne, Wyoming, what do you do? You work at a video store. And I worked at a blockbuster video for two years and I'm pretty sure I saw this in the store. Never watched it. Never really bothered with it. Not sure why. It seems like the kind of movie I would have been drawn to. I would have gravitated towards something like this. But again, I have no idea why I didn't see it until now. Well, I will say the cover art, or the poster art doesn't really do it, the movie justice. It's it's no. definitely, I mean, Mark Maddox can come up with a lot better poster art than we have with this. Yeah. Mark Maddox could do better art than this on a bad day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that might've been what turned you off because back then, you know, as well as I do, when you're walking in the video store and you're going through, uh, the plethora of movies that they had, the cover arts would drew you in. If you didn't like the cover art, you didn't read the back cover. You know, and uh, so it was, it was almost like when you were going book shopping, that cover art was what made you pick up that book or DVD or not DVD, but video cassette to look at it and read the back to see, are you interested in this? And oh, if that yeah, cover art was really good, you were going to get it. And of course, we know from experience, a lot of times the cover art was bait and switch. <laughs> oh, well, that was, yeah, that, that was uh, <laughs> the MO, right? And I, I ran into that, you know, video stores were my outlet when it came to this kind of thing. Right. So I would go to the video stores even before I started working at Blockbuster Video with my parents. You know, a thing was uh, one of the things that we would do before Blockbuster even came to town is we would go to uh, the Video USA, which was in the same shopping area as a Kmart. Just mentioned two businesses that don't exist anymore. And we go to the Video USA and we just look at all the videotapes. And I have mentioned on the show before that I knew the story of the classic movies long before I saw them because I read about them in those Crestwood house books. Well, mm-hmm. as a kid that wasn't allowed to see R rated movies, of course, when I didn't think my parents were watching me, I would go over to the horror section and look at all the horror movie boxes. And because of that, I knew the story of Friday the 13th because I read it on the back of the video boxes. I knew the Nightmare on Elm Street stories because I read it on the back of the video boxes. So I knew them before I even saw the films. And again, I don't know if this is just something that I, I missed or what. I do appreciate that on the DVD, the uh, behind the scenes or, or I forget what he calls it, but George Silver hosts a, a number of short subjects involving the history and legacy of this film and they do show not just the vhs cover but a cover for the beta tape and our household was a beta machine household so just seeing that even though i never saw this movie on beta or anything just gave me an instant charge of nostalgia like oh beta tapes i remember those my dad was an idiot for uh 
<laughs> buying a beta machine instead of a VHS, but whatever. You know? I have I have the movie on Blu-ray, uh-huh. and I was going to get you the Blu-ray, but the Blu-ray now is, I think, in the aftermarket. The DVD still not, so the price of it has gone up. And as you as you know, like a lot of things, it has that limited print run, and then mm-hmm. once it's out, once it's through, it then it suddenly it's crazy prices that I really wouldn't pay for it. Um, and that kind of thing. But I saw that the DVD had the same bonus features and I figured that, you know, it couldn't be that far different than the, the quality. Yeah. It, but with a release like this, I can't imagine that upscaling it to Blu-ray, you're going to see much more. It might even look a little worse. And that's something that I've learned over the years too, watching a lot of these lower budget efforts. If they don't get the time and attention and money to do a proper restoration, you're going to see a lot more of the flaws because film, especially amateur films like this, very forgiving when it comes to seeing the zippers or the seams or the fishing lines. And then you Blu-ray it. And yeah, I just use Blu-ray as a verb. Okay. (laughs) You put it on Blu-ray and suddenly you can see everything. So I will say this with the, with the copies that are on DVD and the Mm Blu-ray, Britt McDonough, who was the cinematographer uh-huh. had an, has an Amazon comment in there in the comment section. And he said that this is the best versions out there that that's really made it a lot better than what we used to see on TV and having seen the old TV ones and comparing it, the, the copy I have now is, is much crisper, nicer and in quality. Wow. It's not perfect, but it's way better than I used to see when I was, that I remember seeing growing up. So yeah, it is, it is a better copy. Right on. Now, and, and you've mentioned this a few times, um, and it's mentioned on the DVD that this got a lot of TV play, but nowhere near me. This is another one of those situations where my childhood was was missing out because I did not have a horror host. I did not have TV stations like this that would play things like this late into the middle of the night. I didn't have any of that. So I didn't have an opportunity to see things like this. So again, just having an opportunity to watch it kind of fills in a lot of those blanks for me. And that makes me really happy. And and the funny thing you mentioned of horror host and that Count Gordival, who was, I, I lived in Baltimore City. So there was two horror hosts. There mm-hmm. was the one on Channel 45 and the one on Channel 20. Right. But Channel 20 was a DC station. In order to get um, that, that night feature, I'd have to get the antennas the right way with the aluminum foil and hope it wasn't a thunder shower going on, a thunderstorm going on in order to get the movie. And you, know, you look at the TV guide and say, okay which movie am I going to watch tonight? And um, Channel 20 with Count Gordival, who is Richard Diesel, Diesel mm-hmm. who's in mm-hmm. the movie as the mayor, um, and that kind of thing. You know, it, it, you know, you get to pick him up. Of course, I didn't know at the time that the Count and the mayor were the same guy, you know, because the makeup, the, the voice being different, that kind of stuff. And well, I was a child. And, and age. I mean, uh, nowadays, uh, I was watching, because I knew Richard Diesel was in the movie. And I was watching for him and I was watching for him. And it took two or three scenes with the, the mayor for me to realize, oh, wait, that's the guy. You know, I'm trying, I'm not casting his version about how old the man is or whatever, but it's been, what, 50 years at this point, 40 years at this point? Let's see, um, 44 years. Yeah. Well, I do know what he said in the bonus features. He was scared as all get out because about remembering his line. Because when he played the count, he was ad libbing. So you didn't have to remember the line because it was filmed live with ad libs. And in this one, he had to have certain dialogue said and that kind of stuff. 
So it was, you know, he said he was like scared because here he was. Yes. He was, he was used to being in front of a camera. He was used to doing this and that, but he had to remember his dialogue. Oh, okay. Okay. And a lot of these actors are doing it for the first time. You know, a lot of them were, were friends of Don Dollars or people that have worked with him at Cinemagic. And so the acting is. Is what, Steve? <laughs> it's all over the place. Inability. I, man, okay. I'm not, I'm not. As it is, as it is with a lot yeah, of low budget um, movies. This, this, hmm. okay. You know, no, I'm not going to go there yet. I'm not going to go there yet. Let's keep talking about the film. Because in the end, it was an enjoyable watch. So yeah, we'll keep talking about the movie. Um, the story itself, once everything is kind of explained, kind of interesting. Uh, I would even go as far as saying pretty novel in some regards. I don't recall seeing anything quite yeah. like that before. I enjoyed it. I thought at the time it came out, which was after Star Wars. But it was shot before Star Wars, wasn't it? It was shot in 76, according to some of the sources I've seen. If you can tell there's some influences there from, from movies of that time, you know, maybe Close Encounters, but, you know, um, or, or things like that. But it was just, I enjoyed it. And you could definitely tell some aspects of Jaws influenced some of the scripts. I was going to comment on that, that recently in the Monster Kid Movie Club stream, I brought up in the Twitch chat, you know, what are some movies you'd like to see people, you know, see us talk about on the show this year? And a lot of those animals attack movies came up. Grizzly, Frogs, Night of the Lepus, things like that. And after that conversation and then watching this, which I watched last night after I got home from Scream 5, um, uh, what a double feature yeah, yeah very very interesting double feature uh, as I was watching this I kept thinking you know this really kind of follows that model that it's not just aliens it's not just a sci-fi monster movie you could look at this as a little bit of an animal's attack kind of thing and I thought that was kind of clever too I thought so and that's why I enjoyed it and, it, and again it was set up in a small area and the mayor wanted to keep the publicity because he was trying to get the amusement park deal, yep. you know, and that kind of stuff. So you had the mayor. Oh no, no, that's not, let's not make a big fuss of this and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But unlike other movies, um, the, the, the mayor changes his tune and does agree there is a problem. And then, um, well, things happen to the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> things happen to the mayor. <laughs> Just saying, unlike other movies where, Nothing really happens to the mayor except that you know he, he keeps the protagonist from doing certain things. In this movie, I think you start off thinking it's going to be the sheriff is going to be the main protagonist, Sheriff Cinder, and it switches to Ben Zachary, who comes in. Oh, about what half about third of the way into the movie, yeah. And from that point on, he's the protagonist. And but it's it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I like it because it keeps things it keeps things moving. And going along, there are some parts of the movie where there, there is some padding. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I know the motorcycle thing was put in there because they had to add extra time. Um, I remember researching that, and they had to add extra time. So they, they filmed the guy on the motorcycle. So that whole motorcycle scene was something they did later on okay. because they needed they needed extra time for the, to get to 80 minutes or whatever. I don't know what, you know what the deal was the situation because they were releasing the film themselves. But I guess to make it a, a to get it with the theaters, 
they needed a certain running back. Sure. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I, I would wonder, too, a lot about the story construction here. This was a very amateur production. I'd be shocked if people got paid any much at all, if anything, on this production. So having tried to make movies when I was a kid, you know, when I thought I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up. I have had experiences where I was shooting movies with my friends and then there was a massive falling out between me and one of my lead actors. The movie wasn't finished. He was our villain. And I had to quickly come up with a workaround and rewrite and rearrange things to make it work, despite the fact that he wasn't there anymore. And I wonder if part of the construction of this story has to do with, well, this guy's done doing this for free. We can't use him anymore because he doesn't want to do it anymore because we're not paying him. Let's make this guy the lead, you know? So I wonder if part of it was that. I don't know if it's the case or not, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing that if it was, that's what happened, whatever. It still works. In the end, that's all we have to look at, you know? The reason I don't think so is because Tom Griffith, who played Sheriff Cinder, worked in Cinemagic, and they wrote the role for him. So he was getting paid at the magazine. Okay. You know, for, for the magazine he was doing or whatever he was doing there. There's so many other scenes he's in the movie with. Uh, and I know in the behind the scenes things, I don't remember with the interviews and other stuff and things I've read where he had an issue with it uh, or had that problem. Okay. I think, I think that was in the script with it. And for listeners wondering, the budget on Wikipedia has this at 3500 In the behind-the-scenes features, Don Dola was being interviewed for um, a local news station in the Maryland area, and they put that in the bonus features. And, that, and he was asked how much the movie cost. And he said it cost 50000 at that time because the movie hadn't been released yet. It was about to be released. And he said it's going to be – he still has to pay the actors and the lawyers, and it should it'll probably be close to 100000 so he was going to release it, and the money he got back from during the release was going to pay the rest of the people. So the budget was closer to a hundred thousand. Okay. Well, it's a pretty good amount of money. I mean, I'm sure um, Joshua Kennedy would kill to have a hundred thousand dollar budget. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't hear any of the actors saying they didn't get paid, and uh, so I think people did. I don't think they got paid a lot. None of them were professional movie actors really um except for george stover was in some some stuff for john waters around that time you know and um, some early things so it's just kind of you know so some of them were doing some movies but they that wasn't their full-time gig they had full-time paying jobs and were doing this on the side sure which is again pretty typical of amateur diy stuff and i mentioned this on the show where i was talking about how we're going to be talking about this movie this week that it's it's a very diy effort it's a regional thing i'm fascinated uh, with this idea of regional filmmaking and when i say that what i'm what i'm describing um it it doesn't really exist anymore i mean i guess it kind of does but not to the same extent where people were realizing especially low-budget genre filmmakers were realizing you don't have to go to Hollywood to make a movie. Maybe you should in some cases, but you don't have to go to Hollywood to make a movie. So you end up with movies like this. You end up with movies like Manos, The Hands of Fate. You end up with movies like The Evil Dead, 
these are what's sometimes referred to as regional films or regional filmmaking. And I am fascinated by this idea that these films influenced by Hollywood, obviously, but created outside of the Hollywood system, the evil dead being probably the most well-known and most successful of the batch. But you have movies like this, you have movies like Zat, you know, shot down in Florida. And it just, I find it amazing and fascinating. And I could do a deep dive on this stuff. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the most famous of them all. Oh no. what I miss? Night of the Living Dead. Now see, would you, I wonder if you would consider that regional filmmaking at that point. I wonder. I do because it was filmed off in Pittsburgh. I know it was all shot up there and they were. Shoestring budget. Shoestring budget. Filmmakers. Yeah. But they kind of knew it's, what they were doing. Pretty- <laughs> Whereas I feel like the, the earmark of most regional films or filmmaking are people who are figuring it out as they go. Oh, I understand what you're saying there. I'm just saying. But you're right. No, that- you're right. You could totally include Night of the Living Dead in that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I think Night of the Living Dead was, is the, was the one where a lot of people look at. And then, of course, in the more recent years, you can look at the Blair Witch Project, also a Maryland project. You can look at Blair Witch. You can look at... Um, how Robert Rodriguez got to start with El Mariachi, you know, that, that yep. kind of stuff. But once you start moving more into the modern era, you have the ability for people to use the same kind of equipment that they had in Hollywood. Whereas back then you're, you're dealing with people that have, you know, a whole movie camera. <laughs> and I love that aesthetic so much, you know, being somebody well, I thought he was going to be a filmmaker when he grew up. I respond to it in such a visceral way that this movie really thrilled me eventually. I struggled with this, Steve. What film did you, what film do you think they used? What type of film to film this? I'm guessing it was 16 of some sorts. It was 16 millimeter, which they blew up to 35. Okay. It does have a 16 millimeter fill, feel, uh, fill, feel, fill. That's it. It has a 16 millimeter texture. <laughs> And I could see yeah being blown up to 35 for distribution. Sure. Uh, I said I watched this last night after I got home from Scream. It wasn't the first time I tried to watch it. I tried watching it last week, and Steve, I had to turn it off. I, I was like, what is this? Why did Steve tell me I'm going to love this movie? I don't no, no, I said you were gonna I said you were gonna enjoy this more than Conan the Destroyer. Oh, no, sir. I think you... No, oh, I'm going to pull up my Facebook messages now. <laughs> because I, Well, no, I'm talking about what I told you verbally. I think I did tell you way back when we were first talking about this. I said, you're going to love this movie because it's like the, it's a monster kid type movie. Uh, let's see. If you compare it, if you compare it to Manos to Hands of Fate, I'm taking this movie way over Manos to Hands of Fate. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure you told me I am going to love it. Yep, oh, right here. I probably did, but it's you are going to love this one. You said, and I'm sitting here and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, Steve, the acting in Manos the Hands of Fate is ten times better. I don't understand. So I stopped. I was like, I have to stop now reconsider my approach, come back to it because I don't want to be negative on the show. I'm glad I came back to it because I, I don't know if I needed a, a palate cleanser. I don't, 
not that Scream was a palate cleanser, but I don't know if I needed a palate cleanser or what, because when I put it in for the second time, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And I'm not sure why. I don't know what caused that to happen, but it did. So I was kind of I was kind of angry with you there for a short period of time the other day. It's like Steve, Steve's gonna make me find something I so oh, uh, I'm not gonna like this one. Uh, but I take back everything I said under my breath about you. That's okay. I've, I've been told worse. I have two older brothers. Um, used to be. <laughs> um, one of the things that I loved about it were the alien, the monster design. I'm a big. I knew you had to love the aliens. Oh yeah, yeah, you have to, especially in this case, because you've got monsters, you've got aliens where they have distorted the human form. Yes, it's still humanoid, but they are seven feet tall. Is the sculpt amazing? Uh, you know, Mitch Gonzalez does better over the Mimiverse, you know, but they still look kind of neat. And he's seven feet tall. You're talking about the Zagatile. Yeah, he's the Zagatile. He's seven feet tall. That's cool. Awesome. That they were able to figure out a way on their budget with their level of experience to create an alien with stilt legs, basically. And it doesn't look like he's wearing stilts. It looks natural. The feet themselves are cool. I loved that. John Constantino was the one who designed it, runs a carpet company, or at least he did in Detroit. Okay. And spent uh, three or four months designing it, you know, like, like Mitch does his stuff after, after work, on weekends, whatever, you know, and, and making the Zagatown. He also played the Zagatown in the movie. Okay. But it, it's interesting because he had the stilts and everything else in it and uh, could walk around. And, and he doesn't look like he was that tall of a guy normally. So he really had, to, he was really off the ground pretty high mm-hmm. um, to do it. And I, I think it worked rather well. I mean, come remember this 1978. You know, you have a small budget. I think the creature does well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have absolutely no complaints whatsoever. I thought it looked really cool. And to to show that it wasn't just something they threw together for a few scenes, it comes out on the set of Count Gordeval's show. It is walking. It is moving. This is a full-on costume. This isn't just something kind of duct taped to somebody. It looks really cool. I was really very happy with that. Thought it looked great. And, and that's probably the most prominent of all the alien creatures. Mm-hmm. The one in the movie. You know, it, it has basement scene, has outdoor scene, multiple outdoor scenes. Yeah. And um, I, I thought, so yeah, it's definitely the one they feature the most. What did you think about the, the infrabite, the insect creature? That was designed by Larry Schlechter. I thought they were okay. I mean, I, the, the star of the show were the the big dudes, but it was okay. I mean, it, the other ones were were good, but my takeaway is going to be the big guy. W- what about you? I love the big guy. I also like the the Lemoid, mm-hmm. um, who was designed by Ernie Warren. That's of course the stop motion type creature. Mm-hmm. That's the energy creature that you see show up that he fights. I enjoy the creature. The the, the fight itself is bizarre. Just a little, <laughs> in, in some ways. I mean, basically, the creature just falls over and dies, and you don't know why. But you do know that was not the first Lemoid design. Did the DVD have the deleted 
scene where it has the um, the original Lemoy. Uh, it does. I didn't get a chance to watch it yet, though, because I just was running out of time. I am going to go back and, re- and watch it, though, which probably tells you a little bit more about how I feel about the movie. Britt McDonough designed the original one. Okay. I like it. I like both of them. I mean, some people like one more than the other, according to behind-the-scenes type stuff. But that, that was the first one they filmed, and they had it timed in. And the other one, I think, was more of a rush. They didn't um, sound... Dolar didn't like that creature design as much. Is that what? So he did, had somebody else. Was that the reason why they redid it? He just didn't like it. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't think it was you know good enough or whatever. It's it, it's like anything, you know. I mean, uh, everybody has their different opinion. Like we were talking about earlier, um, cost alien creature design. Sure. Everybody, everybody has a different opinion. It's like art. That's really what it is. The creature design is artwork. Mm-hmm. And as you brought up with Mitch Gonzalez. Some people just have that talent to take that and make that artistic form, and you just you just love it. You know, you you you, you want to get a mask of it. You want to get a little action figure or a statue yeah. of a lot of those designs that you really appreciate because they're just appealing in a weird way. I mean, in some way, it's just that that the fantastical type creature. Ray Harryhausen's designs. I mean, come on, there's there's some of them that are just breathtaking. Yeah, you're not going to get any arguments from me. Now, is this breathtaking? Uh, not no. I mean, you can tell. This isn't Ray Harry. It's, it's handmade. It's hand stitched. You can tell, but that they were able to come up with an alien that wasn't just a guy in a suit that looked like a guy in the suit. They had a guy on stilts for crying out loud. They changed the shape of the feet, and they they're functional. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean that alone had me. There's two other aliens, but I mean five alien designs. Almost all of them are bipedal, except for the um, the stop motion one. And uh, the stop motion alien, you have people in alien costumes because there's the there's the heroic alien mm-hmm. who it wasn't labeled in the movie at the end. But I think they called him the Inner Man, and you could tell what the guy did. If you look at that alien design. It's basically like the skin layers. If you take the flesh off of us and you look at the skin, the muscle tissue, mm-hmm. that's what they designed that costume from. So they called it the inner man, I believe, in the bonus scene. Okay. Bonus feature. Sure. And I like that. I like that design of that chest. That chest was an awesome yeah. design. Yeah. An arm. The, the head, yeah. you know, was okay. But it's okay, but the rest of it was really strong. Yeah, I think if there's a weak point, it's like the it's the faces. But yeah, the rest of it's just super solid work, and that had me. That I saw that in a new light. Yeah, you know, after having slept, you know, I don't know what my deal was. Maybe my blood sugar was low that day. I don't know. And that's why I told you to love this movie because I was thinking about the creatures. Mm-hmm. You have five different alien creature aliens or alien creatures in it i mean one of them is in a small scene laying on the ground already because it's dying um, it was the caretaker of the spaceship that crashed with the three alien creatures that were going to be specimens to go back to the, the heroic aliens home planet mm-hmm. for them to study and that's what led to them crashing on earth and of course the character the heroic alien came to take care of these alien creatures and speaking of the spaceship that crashed 
I loved the the use of miniatures, the way they did that, where they they had a model of the spaceship that had crashed, and they put it in the extreme foreground, and then had their two actors go you know, way in the background. But because of how film works, and they were able to do this, they made it look like it was all in the same plane, and they had this massive spaceship that had crashed that these two characters are walking to. Brilliant! I loved that so much, and. Man, those are the kind of tricks that I miss. I know that you can do so much with CG these days. I really do. And and, and that's great. The tools are amazing. But man, to do it like that, that's just cool. You you just saw it. I've seen it many times. I think that effect is seamless. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, yeah. That, that effect holds up with all the films. I mean, you can argue about certain things, the creature costumes or just now with other things. But that model effect... Mm-hmm. It is just spot on. I mean, that is that was excellent um, cinematography by you know Britt McDonough and also Don Doler to get that shot set up in the model. I'm not, I forgot who made the model. The model's still out there. Somebody still has the model. Nice. That's great. Yeah, I loved it, man. I thought that's fantastic. That's the kind of filmmaking that you know I read about growing up as a kid. That's what made me want to make movies. All of that, just seeing that happen was just, it blew my mind, man. This this is how it's supposed to be. Speaking of alien spacecraft, what did you think of the miniature for the heroic alien ship? We only saw it for a few seconds, but I really enjoyed the um, the design and the effect yeah. of that miniature. Oh, yeah. The miniature work in this is great. And see, this is... I would so recommend that people that are interested in independent, low-budget filmmaking, if you want to be a filmmaker, watch stuff like this. Sure, you can buy your After Effects and do your computer work, and easier and easier to do that. But watch stuff like this. These are models. These are toys. These are things the size of childhood toys that they make into spaceships. And it's it's amazing. Oh, so good. You're not getting an argument for me, like I said. Those effects are just excellent, excellent. You know, those those miniature effects and how they filmed it and everything, it just blends right in. Mm -hmm. and It just works so, so well. Yeah, I agree. Now, and they even had had the um, special effect with the energy or whatever, the transference effect. And considering the amount of money they had in 1978, I thought that effect was was good. You've mentioned Cinemagic a few times. What is Cinemagic? Because it sounds like something that has to do with like special effects, and that's basically what it is, right? Well, Cinematic Visual Effects was the company that distributed this. It was also Cinemagic was a magazine. If I remember correctly, it ran for 11 issues. A lot of filmmakers fell in love or started their career because of Cinemagic. For instance, like J.J. Abrams, Tom Sullivan, said their careers were inspired as young filmmakers. And eventually, Starlog, in 1979, bought Cinemagic and took it over. I find it so... The Don Dollar started Yeah, I, I find it so fascinating that here's this guy who is in the middle of Maryland, the furthest away from California as you can probably get, inspiring this round of filmmakers this this crop of filmmakers like J.J. Abrams. Just wow. How cool is that? And I'm betting that he probably showed you how to do the effects from the alien factory in the magazine. If he didn't do it in that one, he had other magazines 
that he did or books like film magic, the fantastic guides, the special effects filmmaking, which came out in 79 and a two volume stop motion animation, a complete step-by-step guide in 1980. So he was more, he was a publisher at heart and he was a director because of happenstance because he had to be See, the directing wasn't his first love. It was publishing. Yeah. I, I had really read that, that he love. just, you know, as soon as he was finally able to get out of directing, he did. He found somebody else uh, to direct while he produced and edited. He loved editing as well, from what I understand. It showed because the success of that one magazine to be bought by Starlog. I mean, you know, you start off, it's like a lot of small companies will start off and they start hitting the big time and start making money. And then the bigger, like a bigger company will sometimes be like, oh, we're, we'll give you yay amount of money to take your property, you know, and take, have that intellectual property take control of sure. it. And you can look at it one of two ways. You can keep your company and keep it going, or you can turn it, sell it to that one and start something else up, um, which is what he opted for. And there's nothing wrong with either option. I know nope. some people like to keep control of their babies, and other people are, are looking at it as, this was my startup. I got it going. Okay, now I, I've sold it. I made a profit for a amount of work. Now I can start to see my other ideas yep. and, and things like that, which is what he did. And that's probably some of the money that went into this film. Yeah. Because this film came out in 78, but it probably helped him with other films that he did and other projects. Yeah. So good for him. And I don't know how much money this movie made when it was released, but with the TV money it made afterwards, it's still safe to say it did make a profit of how, of the how much. I mean, I don't know. It was, it was at the most $100,000 budget. I think it probably made with the TV distribution and other stuff. You're probably talking... Maybe a, a couple a million to three million at least. I'm, I'm guessing, you know, because it, it was in the movie. It was being run on TV stations all over the area, including TBS, throughout the early 80s, the mid, mid to late 80s. Well, it's a good find for Monster Kid Radio. I'm so glad you brought it to the table because I really enjoyed it. I will go back and I will be rewatching this film for sure. Uh, no question there. And I will be exploring the special features a little bit more. Uh, I just ran out of time and I wanted to make sure that, you know, I at least got the movie in, especially since I had that false start. To me, to me it's 80 minutes long. Uh-huh. And I think 60 minutes of it are really good. And there's 20 minutes of padding. I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean, there, there's some scenes that I, I could just feel are padded on. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, but I mean, it really works well. For listeners wondering what the plot is, Pretty much, um, an alien ship crashes. We don't see it crash. We find this all out later on, but an alien ship crashes. Three creatures come out. They're terrorizing a small Maryland town as a sheriff and a deputy. It's killing people um, because the alien creatures are just, you know, attack whatever's there because they're confused. They're not on their home planet, that kind of stuff, which I do like. It, with two of the creatures, it just says they're like wild animals in a different habitat, and they're just scared mm-hmm. and attacking anything that comes near them. Yep, and and only one of them was labeled as um, malicious, which was the, the the boss creature for the end, the energy creature. Yeah, and of course the heroic alien comes to find out, to find the creatures and take care of them. Then Zachary shows up at the town, like we said, a third of the way through, and he comes to help them out. He has a mysterious background and helps the sheriff and all them to try to figure out what's going on. He likes to work alone, and he comes up with inventive ways to take out the various creatures. That's pretty much the movie. Pretty much. I'm not going to say how it ends, no. but it does have an end familiar to some other movies that we just mentioned 
Yeah, we're also independent. The acting is really rough. In some spots, it's just flat out terrible. Uh, I'm just telling you right now, if you haven't seen this movie and you're curious about it, know that you're in for a very bumpy ride when it comes to the acting. However, I think it's something that you can pretty easily overcome pretty quickly when you start to see some of the other charms that this movie has. So I'll just put that out there. I mean, I think that's probably safe to say, right? I mean, the acting's pretty, pretty rough in spots. Well, I said, I said it. I said it's spotty. Yeah, it's it's spotty. And and I and when I found that from listening to when they had when they talked about the cast people that where they were like when the the DVD Blu-ray came out, which was like about seven years ago, mm-hmm. they were catching up with the surviving members, and people were saying how they got involved. And like I said, the guy who played the sheriff, Tom Griffith, was working at the magazine and they wrote, Oh, we wrote a part for you. Do you want to do this? And suddenly he's doing that. You know, it's yeah. You're getting non-professionals or people that were very young that were doing some local theater. And this was their first movie. It's there. Some of them, like I said, do better than others and are able to do it. And and also you have a guy writing his first script, doing his first directing Mm -hmm. the the cinematographer. This was his first and only film. So it's, you, you have, a lot of those that those first, first, and first hitting, mm-hmm. so it does make it kind of difficult. I look at this as a true cult classic. Again, I keep going back to the first view that I had of it. My first viewing, I thought the only reason Steve likes this is because it's from Maryland, and so is he. And, and I'm sure that was part of the draw for the area, sure, and part of the charm. But really, there's so much more to it than that. Uh, the acting and some of the pacing editing choices. I, I have no idea what was going on there, but it's still really good. I'm really happy to have watched this. I'm glad I gave it that second chance. I, I don't know what was off. I don't know if I was just, you know, it must have been a blood sugar thing. I'll blame my diabetes. Okay. That's, that's what it was. But Derek, I have one question to ask you. Oh no. <laughs> What's up? What did, what did you think of the music? Okay. I, Ooh, um, it was very low budget. <laughs> I, I was. Tell us how you really feel there. Don't hold back. I, 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 I don't think this, the movie's strength was with the soundtrack, uh, either with either the score or the, the rock band they had playing in that one scene. I don't think that's where the movie thrives. I think that rock band would totally fit in for a group that would play the dive that it was playing at. Maybe. Yeah. That would be the talent level you would expect. Now, is that the talent level you would put in a movie? No, but it was a talent level you would expect to see at a dive that's, you know. Yeah. With, you know. And, and that's, I think, so I think, that's fair. So I think if you look at it in continuity, I can give it a pass that way. But yeah, the, the music is. I'm not buying the CD if there is one. Let's put it that way. Yeah, uh, hard pass there, buddy. Yeah, the music, not so great. And, you know, some of the optical effects, you know, not so great. They haven't really aged very well, but, you know, it's an artifact of the time. So enjoy it. Have fun with it. It's really easy to do to have fun with it. Because this movie is about, is about as old as you. I'd like to think I've aged better. I think you have. I'm just saying I'm I'm way older than this movie. I'm 10 years, almost 10 years older than the movie. So you're about this movie. Oh, okay. Okay. You're a young little pup. <laughs> uh, so the movie is still available. Is that right? It's available. Um, the DVD is available for a reasonable price. 
um, below twenty dollars. I think it's also available on Amazon Prime for a small rental fee. So, and if you look at different streaming services, I mean, for a while there it was available free on Amazon. You and I were going to do this a few years ago when it was on Amazon Prime, yeah. And then it and then it left. So I mean, as anybody knows, the streaming services these things move around, and sometimes it comes back. So if you're paying attention to it, if you can get on a streaming service, and you're not paying anything. Stick it in. I mean, just just give it a chance. Once you get to the Zagatail, the Tog Monster, you know you're home free. You know it, it's once because the action starts picking up. Yeah, it's got the story set up. It's ready to go. Um, there's very very little gore. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of blood, but it's so incidental. I've seen more blood in modern re- wrestling matches. I'll just say that. It's so little. Yeah, it fits like the 1950s perspective. And, mm-hmm. they, and it's, it's one of those. <laughs> right down those to the sexism. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but the town doctor is a female. So I know, it's a, but it's a little different when the three guys are out looking for the animal that hurt their buddy and they've got the woman along, and I still don't understand why she's with us. <laughs> I'm going, okay. <laughs> well, they didn't give her a gun. Well, That's that too, weird, that you know? too. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's go out hunting. You don't need a gun. Just uh, I think her name was Susan. Susan, just stay between us and you'll be safe. <laughs> Let's let's put it this way: four go into the woods, but only one comes back. Yeah, and can you guess which one it is, listeners? Can you guess? Yeah, yeah. Can you guess? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it when I was growing up. I mean, it has has good memories for me, you know. Sure. And like I said, I admit there's 20 minutes of padding. There's there's a scene where the kids are throwing the ball in the air, and it's like weirdly in slow motion for some reason. Like what? And. Yeah, I think they're just trying to get to that eighty-minute mark for whatever reason. I guess that I think that was filmed later on. It was probably Don Dohler's own children or some children in the neighborhood. Yeah, go out, run around, throw a ball in the air. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised. Uh, we should probably mention because I'm sure somebody else has already said it out loud to their iPod or whatever it is they're listening to the show on. This movie has been covered on Mystery Science Theater three thousand, and from what I understand, it's been done at least twice. Uh, on that program once during his regular run and then once during its early like public access days from what i understand i I couldn't quote you episodes or anything so i don't know i'm not that kind of a fan but yeah i've never seen mystery science theater 3000 or um, what's the other one where the guys spun on uh they did cinematic titanic as a touring show so there's another thing um I did see this one tour, but they called it, they weren't called cinema. It was like the guys that were in mystery science theater, but two of them riff, riff track. Yeah. That's the other name. Yeah. Riff track. I did see one of them where they did a movie at, at, at a local area where they, you know, it was, and it's the only time I've ever seen it. So I, you know, they're like, okay, let me see this. And it was um, the tingler. And, Oh wow. And, and that, which was fine. I enjoyed it. I, I didn't like them really making a lot of fun of the tingler, but it was okay. I never taken my son Patrick to see that. And it was his first time ever seeing the tingler. And he never realized that the two guys are sitting in the audience ripping on it. Even though they said that it didn't dawn on uh, him. He's like, Oh, that wasn't part of the movie. Oh, that was, Oh the guy's my. Ripping. It, 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 yeah. <laughs> he said, no wonder I was so confused. Well, yeah. 
so I, I came to the belief that with Rip Tracks or Mystery Science Theater 3000, I think for me, if I was to watch them, I'd have to have seen the movie first and then watch it. Because if I hadn't seen the movie, I'd probably be trying to figure out what's going on in the movie and trying not to listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Where if I know what's going on in the movie, I could focus on their ripping, so to speak. But it's really not my cup of tea. Um, and we've talked about that here in the past on the show. And, and yeah, I go back and forth on it depending on what time of year and what movie we're talking about. Oh, yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say about the show before we sign off here, sir? No, I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to the episode you got coming up for the next few months. I know um, in May you're doing your big luchador type stuff. I got called out. You know, got to do it. So, if you get the if you got the guy showing up in the luchador mask in your in your, and they found where your new place is, and they're standing at your apartment, yelling, "Book, you do luchador, or else you do it." Well, yeah. Who am I to deny? You know, I'm looking forward to it because you know you you. you I've I've only seen a few luchador movies, but I get that I get that sense of what they're about listening to the podcast, and then I know which ones to to go and maybe seek out that kind of stuff. Right on. So it, I look forward to that month because it's like uh, one of the things I love about episodes is when you're talking about movies that I haven't seen yet. Hmm. Because I always like it when you get the new territory, and I'm not sure how many of your listeners have seen the Alien Factor, so hopefully this is something a lot of them haven't seen, and um, if they're interested. Watch it. Let us know what it's like and um, yeah. give us feedback. And like we said, is it a great movie? No, but it's an entertaining movie to me. And I think it is to you. And and that's really when it comes down to, did it entertain you? Is, yes, there are issues with the movie, but it's still, I think, overall an entertaining movie, at least to me. Is it a great movie? No. Did I have a great time watching it? Yes. All right. So we talked about it at the top. Let's talk about it again the diecast movie podcast available where you can pick up any podcast available where fine podcasts are sold or downloaded for free. Check out the movie diecast podcast to hear Steve and his guests and interviewees. Your kids still do the show with you. Yeah. We, they, they rotate it up. It's kind of hard right now because of Ben, um, the college he's gotten swamped. He's gotten bogged down. So it's, um, so right now it's been, me with a bunch of other people, but they'll be picking back up again. I'm sure. Short. I'm sure. Shortly, they'll be joining with me. For listeners that are wondering, our next episode is going to be a tribute to Howard for his birthday. And I'm not going to be on it, and I'm so bummed. Okay, not really. I'm really excited to hear somebody else gush about Howard for once because I can tend to get a little. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to announce who it's going to be? Reber Clark. There you go. Composer extraordinaire. The man is awesome. He's a great dude, great musician, and a fan of Howard. His knowledge of Howard is is, is extremely good. And um, so we're going to be doing the, the movie of his picking and um, that kind of stuff. And it'll be, it'll be really cool. I can't wait to do it. And they'll be coming out the 22nd. Looking forward to it, my friend. Tell Reber I said hi, and I'm not grumpy at all that he's doing one of my favorite movies. And I'm not. Um, 
And for listeners wondering what the movie's name is, I wasn't going to say. Uh, I wasn't going to say. <laughs> it's the whole wide world, and I've yet to watch it, so I'll be watching it soon. So it'll be a first time viewing for me. And um, Reber's seen it many times. I know you've seen it many times. But Derek, it's a pleasure as always to be on your show. You do a great job all the time. You know, you, like I, you just like I said, pace yourself. It's January. You're already coming out of the gate strong, like I said, but you got to make it all the way through December. So, you know, you got to keep those legs strong, which living on the third floor now is probably going to help you. <laughs> Build those leg muscles up. Get ready to do it. And and listen to Wednesday. She knows what to tell you. She knows what's right. Wednesday's the captain out of sight. Wow. Okay, on that, I'm ending because it's getting, yeah, we're done. You are listening to the most massive carnivorous ground beast in the world. Over 2,000 pounds and 18 feet of gut-crunching, man-eating terror. By its size alone, it can overpower and devour any human. The deadliest jaws on land belong to... Grizzly. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. When will man ever learn that when he pollutes the air and the water, he declares war against nature? American International Pictures presents Frogs, the story of the day nature strikes back. See Frogs in color, rated PG. Frogs, today the pond, tomorrow the world. nightmare darkness, evil his face, evil his deeds. Do you really think I'd invent something as horrible as all this just to get rid of a ranch hand? I don't know what to think. I only know that I can't accept such a thing as a, a vampire. His victims, the young and the beautiful, as well as the bold and the strong. You were just lucky the other night when my man missed you. If that was me, you'd be pushing dirt. Don't reach for your gun. Will you get out of here? You call the time. Are they doomed, all who oppose him? Break! Can nothing human stop him? I hit him. I know I hit him. If I can't do it now with your consent, I'll go into Banning and get a court order. But I'm going to open those coffins. See you dead first! Not dead! What you just heard there was part of the trailer for the movie Curse of the Undead, which is the movie that we're going to be talking about next week here on the show with Todd Brown from The Haunted Cinema. This is one of those long 
just stating episodes where he and I have been trying to get something set up and then I did the move thing and then yeah, scheduling has just been a bear, but we're keeping our fingers and tentacles crossed because this Monday he and I are recording about Curse of the Undead and I'm super excited about that. So come back for that. In the meantime, though, check out our website monsterkidradio.net, where you can find links to our Twitter page, our Discord, our Patreon, our Facebook group, and yes, even the Facebook page. I was not able to recover the old Facebook page, so I just made a new one. Facebook.com slash Podcast. Not a lot of material there right now. It's going to take a little while to fill it out, but please consider liking the page if you are a Facebook user. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to start streaming the Saturday and Tuesday and any other streams that we do through Twitch. Also through the Facebook page, it might not happen this weekend, but very soon in the near future, we're going to get that taken care of as well. I'm really excited about all that. Also on our website is our contact information. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. You're also going to find links to everything that we've talked about in this episode of the podcast, including a link to Amazon if you want to pick up a copy of The Alien Factor for yourself. Please consider shopping through the Amazon affiliate links over on the website, whether you're picking up Ultraman, Ultra 7, The Alien Factor, Steve's books, my book, anything that you pick up through Amazon, please consider using the Amazon affiliate link. There's one that looks like a silhouette of the Frankenstein monster. Click on that. That's going to take you to Amazon. And anytime you buy something after you've clicked on that link, we get a little bit of a cut here at Monster Kid Radio. It doesn't cost you any extra. It just helps us out a little bit by giving us a little bit of that sweet, sweet Bezos money. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, everything's over there at the website. So please check it out. And please engage with us through any of our social media outlets, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. You know, I've even got an Instagram, but I haven't really done much with the Monster Kid Radio Instagram lately. I personally have a personal Instagram, as does Wednesday, but... You know, it's not really Monster Kid Radio specific. Anyway, all the information's over there. You're going to find links to Mark's stuff. You're going to find links to Steve Turek's website and podcast and all that. It's just everything's there. That's where you want to go. And then follow the links to go to the other places that you want to go. You know? Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, it doesn't apply to the song Astronave 63. That belongs to the band Five Fingers with Parasol. The name of the album is Citoviere Una Longboard. It's the best I'm going to be able to do, gang. Fivefingers.bandcamp.com will get you to their Bandcamp page. That song is copyright. The band, Citiviera Una Longboard, 2017. Until next week, my name is Derek M. Cook, and I've been your host here for Monster Cri Why is this sounding awkward all of a sudden? I don't know. Probably because the episode's running late. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. <laughs>